Welcome to Prison Pipeline, produced at the studios of KBOO Portland. I'm Karen James. The Oregon legislature is in session, and with me to discuss their 2023 legislative agenda and their upcoming Advocacy Day are folks from Partnership for Safety and Justice, Talia Gad, Communications Director, and Babak Zolvigari Azar, the new Senior Policy Manager for PSJ. So welcome. Thanks, Karen. It's good to be here. Thank you, Karen. Talia Babek, you have a few bills and they've been introduced at the request of Transforming Justice Coalition. So talk about that coalition. Yeah, thank you, Karen. Yeah, so we've got in the Transforming Justice Coalition, which is actually a a number of stakeholders from across the state who've come together to work towards criminal justice reform. And we've got folks with lived experience and we've got folks um, from across the state with culturally specific um, organization. So there's a broad range and um, diversity in the the stakeholders that are part of this coalition that meets uh, every Tuesday. So this legislative session, two specific bills that we have that we're working towards. Um, and, and actually, before I get into that, it's really important to frame what we're focusing on and why. So before I get into the bills, it's it's really centered around legislation that shrinks the system and invest in equity and healing um, for communities, especially communities of color. And so there's three focuses around shrinking the system, um, which is a core value of partnership for safety and justice and is a shared value within the Transforming Justice Coalition. The first is consistent supervision. This is like parole and probation in the community. It's community-based supervision, right? Um, So these are folks who are not incarcerated. Um, And this is Senate Bill 581. Um, it's also known as earned discharge, earning time off your supervision. And so the piece with this is, you know, we think of mass incarceration, folks who are incarcerated, who are in prisons and jails, right? We oftentimes don't think about mass supervision. And in Oregon, we actually have nearly twice as many people who are supervised in the community compared to the number of folks who are essentially supervised in custody while they're incarcerated. We're going to be talking about these terms, parole, probation, and post-prison supervision. Can you define those terms before we talk about Senate Bill 581? Oftentimes, folks think when someone's incarcerated and they return to the community, they move forward. They get a fresh start, right? Blank slate. And, and actually, uh, post-prison supervision is exactly what it sounds like, right? Supervision once you've completed your time in prison, right? And so that supervision with a parole and probation officer with, you know, a number of standards and rules and conditions that you have to follow while you're living at home, living in the community, that actually often becomes like a tripwire or a series of like ways to set up to fail to then return to custody, right? To return to prison. So, you know, that's not a way for folks to really be able to rebuild their lives and, and live in a way in the community that allows them to thrive. Um, and so what we look at with Senate Bill 581 is when folks are doing what they need to do while they're in the community, living their lives, supporting their families, um, they're employed, they're working, um, and they're not involved in any sort of like law-breaking behavior, um, giving them giving them an opportunity to earn time back um, and not have to go, you know, three years, you know, on parole or probation, right? But at that 50% checkpoint, be able to actually move on from that supervision while they're in the community. Um, and that sort of focus on success for people is something that really allows people to really thrive and focus on positive reinforcement um, rather than just, you know, probation officers looking for like, what is this person doing wrong, right? How can I catch them making a mistake, right? 
And that's a very adversarial, almost like law enforcement kind of relationship. Whereas, you know, focusing on the positives that people are doing, looking at consistency, especially with this bill, there's there's so many different rules with how you earn time off your supervision. And there needs to be consistency in that one way that it's done. And it's actually not done one way right now. Uh, it's confusing. And again, it doesn't incentivize success. So, you know, that piece around the supervision in the community being relational and being based on positive reinforcement and there being consistency, that'll really allow people to, to rebuild their lives and, and be successful. There's also like, there's kind of like these collateral things too that are actually positive, like lower caseloads for probation and parole officers who can then with less folks on their caseloads because folks aren't on these extended probation um, lengths, then they can really focus on like quality case management, right? With folks who are on pro probation. And then ultimately deeply within that, it promotes racial equity, right? You know, and we've got folks who are disproportionately affected by so many different checkpoints in the system, um, negatively impacted by different checkpoints in the system. And to be able to have legislation like Senate Bill 581 focus on the part of the system that is re-entry and folks actually being in our communities, to be able to have a strategy or to have a, a culture within that part of the system, the re-entry part, um, the community part, um, I think can really um, help elevate the needs for equity within uh, uh, the racial disparities that we see. What are some of the other issues that individuals face on this sometimes excessive post-prison supervision? Some of the issues really center around having all these different rules and conditions kind of following you year after year, month after month, week after week, right? You, you still feel like you're incarcerated, even though you're in the community. It's almost like this false sense of freedom in the way you're moving around, um, checking in, having to go to a you know probation office or having them come to your home, right? And having that sort of consistent, you know, are you following the rules? Are you following the rules? That really doesn't allow people to really like move forward. And the barriers that folks face when they're on extended supervision is it is really hard to get on with your life. There are appointments that you have to make at particular times that, you know, disrupt your work day. And then you have to have a lot of explaining to do with your place of employment. It can be challenging to find housing when you're continuously on supervision. There are these constant barriers that come up for folks that are as deeply embedded within the carceral system, even on post-prison supervision, that folks who have not had to heed all of those rules don't always think about or are aware of, but it actually ends up being, I think exactly like what Babak was saying, is it so many tripwires that disrupt family and work lives and home lives that make it so that people end up tripping for small violations, technical violations, back into jail and prison. And Babak, what are the numbers of people on post-prison supervision? So there's about 12,000 people in our prisons in Oregon, and there are uh, well over 20,000 people on uh, community supervision. So uh, it ranges uh, between kind of the mid-20,000s and just below 30,000. And what are the current laws? There are some laws on Oregon's books. Can you talk about the current laws? Yeah, so th there's actually been other legislation passed over the last few years where the this is what creates the inconsistency. So depending on when your community supervision started, it impacts um, how much time you can earn off your post-prison supervision or your community supervision. And so what this legislation, Senate Bill 581, does is that it creates one rule for 
earning up to 50% off your community supervision rather than probation officers having to look at when you started your community supervision uh, and which rule to follow, right? We're just creating one uniform way of that approach. Does community corrections, Oregon community corrections, do they approve of this bill? Where do they stand on Senate Bill 581? Community corrections isn't opposing this legislation for um, consistent community supervision. So, Babak, you did talk about how people of color are impacted by post-prison supervision. And you mentioned that there are 20 to 30,000 people on post-prison supervision in Oregon. So exactly how many people will Senate Bill 581 impact? Yeah, Senate Bill 581 will impact about 7,000 people directly. Senate Bill 581 appears to have a lot of support, both by organizations in the community and the legislators. Yeah, this is correct. And it, it actually passed unanimously out of the Senate Judiciary Committee recently. So there's bipartisan support here. As far as organizations, you're absolutely right. There's uh, a number of organizations, including um, POIC, Portland Opportunities Industrialization Center, Latino Network, uh, Red Lodge Services, uh, the ACLU, Urban League. I mean, a ton of organizations are supporting this. So we've talked about Senate Bill 581, um, which is really focused on uh, shrinking the system, you know, looking at consistent supervision in communities. But we've also got two other focuses um, in terms of shrinking the system with our legislation um, this session. Um, Talia will speak to justice reinvestment, and I'll speak a little bit to restorative justice. In restorative justice, uh, we have a fiscal ask of about $4 million here to really help continue to support programs that center restorative justice, which is an alternative to the traditional criminal justice system. The reason this is important as an alternative response to harm and violence instead of our traditional system of incarceration is that crime victims really get their needs met. And, and this really drives better outcomes for, for crime survivors and victims uh, because the truth and honesty is at the center of a restorative justice process. And so, you know, you think oftentimes like the narrative in the news is like when there's a crime, it's between like strangers, right? People who don't know each other, right? We actually know that uh, crime is actually more often between people who do know each other. And so having restorative justice be a starting point for folks uh, instead of, all right, well, the, the person who's caused the harm is going to you know, have a lawyer. And then the person who's experienced the harm is kind of separated out with kind of like the state, you know, with the prosecution and don't talk to each other. Don't tell the truth. Keep your mouth shut. Like, because it's going to hurt you if you're honest, right, as the person who's caused the harm a person who's experienced a harm really never truly even hears an apology, right? Or gets to ask questions to understand, like, why did this happen, right? Why did you make this decision? The person who's experienced the harm, their needs are not driving the process. And so what does healing actually look like um, for a person um, in that sense? And so the fact that there's, you know, responsibility for actions, there's really true accountability and honesty, that really is why we want to really focus on you know, restorative justice and, and funding more restorative justice programs. So if you look at also, you know, communities of color specifically um, and the lack of trust in the system and the lack of trust in cooperating with police and, and the courts, that in and of itself too, when you're centering restorative justice and you're getting to a more relational kind of outcome um, in this process leads to like a, that human to human um, interaction that can really lead to, to healing and accountability. 
that you don't see in the traditional criminal justice system. So a third bill that we're prioritizing this year, also really important, so critical for shrinking the system, is called justice reinvestment. So a lot of longtime advocates are going to remember that about 10 years ago in 2013, the state of Oregon was ready to break ground on another prison. We had 14 prisons at the time. They were plans ready to build a 15th in Junction City. Incarceration numbers were creeping up. It was, you know, really moving in a certain direction in terms of what Oregon's response to crime and violence was looking like, just build more prisons. Advocates at the time, back in 2013, passed the Justice Reinvestment Grant Program. What that did was a couple of things, lowered prison sentences and directed savings from those directly into communities. So now what we're building, this is a lot of what Babak was talking about with regards to like more local directed responses, is as a result, all 36 Oregon counties received funding for local resources to help people who were justice involved and helping crime victims and survivors. So grant dollars from justice reinvestment went to support transitional services, housing, treatment, and victim services, including specifically services that are culturally specific. So that approach to shrink the system, shrink prison sentences, and invest those savings into our communities has meant that not only did that one prison not open, but we have also since closed two additional prisons. So now instead of what we would have had, 15, we now have 12 prisons. And the approach has saved Oregon taxpayers over half a billion dollars in prison spending. About every biennium, so the legislative uh, budget happens over every two years. They refer to it as a biennium. Every biennium, this program asks for $55 million to be directed to those community services. What we're asking for this year is not only that the justice reinvestment approach, the whole approach continue, that's one part of it, but also that we definitely, you know, re-up that $55 million to all 36 counties so that we can make sure that crime victims and people who are seeking housing support, transitional services, et cetera, continue to receive those critical services within all of our communities across the state. Um, so we're, we're very excited about uh, making sure that justice reinvestment continues the way that it was intended to 10 years ago and really kind of lay the foundation for the spirit of how Oregon does criminal justice reform. Now, you talked about shrinking the system. Let's move on to your other push in the legislature for investing in equity and healing. So, Babak, do you want to talk about House Bill 2650? Absolutely. And, and to recap, you, know, you look at consistent supervision, justice reinvestment, and sort of justice as three policies we are prioritizing to shrink the system. Um, we can't just focus on shrinking the system, right, to make our community safer. There's more to it. And so... Uh, we also need to invest in equity and healing to drive uh, safer communities. And, and one way of doing that is to actually have folks with this example, um, House Bill 2650, folks with lived experience who are directly impacted by legislation to actually be on the work groups and task forces that help drive outcomes, right? This is like you're really getting into like the implementation of legislation and to not have diverse experiences and voices involved in those decision making tables. Uh, is part of the reason we see such inequity in our communities, right? And so the voices of folks, especially of communities of color who have not been represented in these spaces, it not only doesn't support these communities, it actually negatively affects uh, those communities across our state. So we're really excited about this legislation. 
and, and having folks with lived experience from historically underserved communities really making an impact and having a voice. And they're being compensated um, for their time and for the travel, right? They're taking time away from their community, from their job, from their family. And so we've got a process in place within House Bill 2650 where, where folks are going to also be compensated for their time. So there's like an economic justice element to this as well. I'll also jump in to say that this is actually, it's such a critical approach to public safety reform, but this bill actually is requesting equitable work groups across issues across the board. So when housing policy is made, when education policy is made, when environmental policy is is made, what happens is the groups that are considering and weighing and advocating for particular approaches and policies that Oregon takes too many times there's just not the uh, right folks at the table with like direct experience who represent communities of color, who are people of color that are disproportionately impacted by all of these issues in ways that continue to focus policies in ways that benefit majority communities and, you know, continue to marginalize people of color. So this is an enormous effort to really pivot how Oregon does policymaking is bigger than criminal justice reform. It is really just about policymaking in general, more equitable policymaking. And a lot of communities are uh, adopting diversity, equity, and inclusion in all of their decision-making policies. So why is this bill still needed in addition? There are efforts for sure being made. I think it can be very simple to continue along a path of least resistance that there's, this is just how it's always been done and it's working okay, (laughs) but it's really not working okay. And I think too, there's a current understanding about what equitable policies need to look like. What we understand now over the last several years is that if you don't specifically have an anti-racist lens in policymaking, the policies you advance are going to figure out a way to have racist outcomes and disproportionate outcomes. So if you don't have people at the table with an anti-racist lens and perspective that it just cannot be there in any other way, those policies will find a way to continue to privilege white communities and uh, disproportionately impact our communities of color. So let's move on to other areas of investing in equity and healing. Measure 110 implementation and treatment. Talia, talk about Measure 110. Yeah, Oregon voters are going to remember that we passed in November of 2020 Measure 110, making Oregon the first state in the country to decriminalize drug use and substance use disorder and direct dollars to treatment. Why are we talking about this uh, two years later? So the issue is that we have to make sure that it's implemented in the way that the Oregon voters really wanted those dollars to be implemented. The voters who supported this by almost a 20-point margin have said in very clear terms, we have 50 years of evidence that the war on drugs has been a colossal failure. It did very little, if anything, to help people. In fact, While we were implementing that approach, what ended up happening in the state of Oregon is that Oregon was the second in the nation in drug use and substance use disorder and last in the nation in access to drug treatment. By advancing, by passing ballot measure 110 a couple years back, what we've done is saying, okay, let's stop this criminalization 
of drug use and substance use disorder. Let's instead invest deeply in all of our communities with services and support networks. So not just beds, but what is the infrastructure that people who struggle with substance use disorder and addiction, what is the infrastructure and community support systems that are needed to be able to really overcome that addiction? So why are we talking about this now? What is happening is that the $300 million that have been directed to those drug services, long overdue pro <laughs> and incredibly essential, is being threatened, constantly threatened into being directed into um, being asked to be directed into other sources. Other sources that need support, but not from these dollars. These dollars have to continue to be directed to all of our communities to make sure that a, the Oregon voters that wanted it directed into communities are getting it, and also the people who have been waiting for treatment and support across Oregon are going to get the supports that they need and deserve in overcoming uh, addiction and substance use disorder. Babak, talk about another agenda item, healing hurt people. Absolutely. So healing hurt people in this uh, this budget ask, so this is not a standalone bill, it's another um, investment ask, a funding ask. It's really focused on investing in victims healing and gun violence prevention. So we know what a critical issue, an important issue gun violence is in our community, um, all the concern that's centered around gun violence and um, healing hurt people is a solution that we have, uh, investing in healing hurt people. So Healing hurt people is incredibly impactful in reaching crime victim needs and preventing violence. So Healing Hurt People is a program within Portland Opportunities Industrialization Center, which is known in the community as POIC. It's also got alternative middle school and high schools associated with it, which is Rosemary Anderson High School. So uh, it's a culturally specific evidence-based hospital-based intervention program. They're meeting folks at the most critical time, most vulnerable time in the hospitals to provide direct service and support, right? Which can really help in the aftermath of violence to have folks with lived experience who can understand this trauma of violence to help prevent any sort of retaliation, to help connect them with the services they need to heal and to potentially relocate if that's the safest option for them. Um, and so it, this is really critical to safety across our state to really um, invest in healing hurt people, make sure that folks who experience violence are getting the, the support that they need at their most vulnerable time. So a couple of years back, Partnership for Safety and Justice, with together with uh, some really extraordinary community partners and allies, put out a report about crime victims of color and their experiences being the most impacted by the criminal justice system and least helped by the criminal justice system. And Babak spoke about this earlier, where because of over-policing, because of over-charging, over-criminalization, over-incarceration that disproportionately impacts communities of color, victims of color have a much lower rates of reporting and seeking help from the criminal justice system. So, so many of these approaches that we're talking about now, when we talk about culturally specific crime victim and survivor services, it's actually incredibly essential that they are community-based that they represent communities of color, that they're staffed by people of color who have lived experience that are known within the communities that they're serving. Healing hurt people as a response to harm and violence 
is a perfect example of an existing program that is responding to survivors of color who may otherwise never engage in the criminal justice, who still may never engage within the criminal justice system for a lot of personal and complex reasons. But what we are doing with this approach by expanding Healing Hurt People so that there are programs like it, not just in Portland, like what we have now, but across the state too, is making sure that crime victims, that people who are victims of stab wounds, of gunshot wounds, who are victims and hospitalized and need services and support, but not from the criminal legal system, are able to get those wraparound services be directed to the kinds of supports that help them move through the trauma of that violence that's occurring right then, but then also really moving through what, you know, as a crime victim can really last many, many, many years and impacts families and impacts communities. So really directing folks to the kinds of resources that crime victims need to move through that violence and to heal and to rebuild their lives in a way that does not depend on the criminal justice system's response to that violence. Each legislative session, we're down in Salem with Partnership for Safety and Justice, and it's no different this year. You will have your Advocacy Day on April 19th. Talk about Advocacy Day. Yeah, so we've got these six legislative policies that we're fighting for at Advocacy Day, which is occurring on Wednesday, April 19th in Salem. We're excited for folks from all over Oregon to show up and and lobby with us. Uh, It's an excellent opportunity to take action on shrinking the system and invest in equity and healing in our communities. Uh, You can visit safetyandjustice.org to learn more and, and sign up right there. We really hope you can join us. Yeah, it's such a fun day. It's I've been at PSJ for, for six years, and every year it's our most exciting day of the year. And it'll be the first time that we're back in Salem since COVID. The last time was in the February of 2020, so right before COVID kind of did its thing. And uh, so to be back together with folks from all across the state, you know, getting to connect with each other, shared values, shared vision, meeting with legislators, you know, sharing food and and good times. And I'm just, we're just so excited that it's happening again. So hope that folks can join. Talk about how people can get connected and especially for Advocacy Day. I would love for folks to just check out our website, safetyandjustice.org. There's information for how to register for Lobby Day. There's also a bunch of advocacy actions that people take with so many of our priority legislation. There are ways for each person to be able to, or in Oregon, to be able to email their own legislator and say why these approaches, these policies, as your constituent, why I want you to support and vote for these. And so um, it's a really great way to take action. Folks that sign up for email will get information for like when hearings are happening, how to take action on other legislation, um, how to basically stay up to date on some of the most critical reforms that we do. You know, in the last 10 years, our work has prevent two prisons from opening and shut down two other prisons, saved the state half a billion dollars in prison spending. And so critically has made sure that our communities are receiving the necessary dollars 
for local uh, culturally specific services that were responding to, to public safety needs and the needs of crime victims and survivors. And so, you know, really hope that folks join us on Advocacy Day and beyond to help advancing this critical work. Talia Gad, Babak Zalvagari Azar, thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks again. I've been speaking with Partnership for Safety and Justice, Talia Gad and Babak Zalvagari Azar. Listen to this and previous Prison Pipeline programs at kboo.fm slash Prison Pipeline. Like Prison Pipeline on Facebook. Thank you to our engineer and thank you for listening.